0: Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey.
1: Jerry Garcia had been dead and gone for 25 years when, in 2020, his name and likeness were used to market a hotly anticipated new product. But this time, the product wasn't an all-ages dessert like Cherry Garcia, the popular strain of Ben & Jerry's ice cream first debuted back in 1987. This time, it was something strictly for the adults, those with a valid form of ID, of course. This time, it was weed the Garcia handpicked designer line of sativa, indica, and hybrid joints and gummies was a family affair spearheaded by Trixie Garcia, one of Jerry's daughters and the president of his estate. The idea of pairing Jerry Garcia with cannabis is as much of a no-brainer as pairing Michael Jordan with Nike's. So much so that you might ask why it took so long to come to fruition. In one word, legitimacy. Trixie and the Garcia family spent years meeting with growers, packagers, and distributors, and yes, doing proper research and development by smoking tons of grass. All the while, they were biding their time, waiting for the right moment, the legal moment. By the time Garcia Handpicked began selling to the public in November of 2020, the legal cannabis industry in the United States was exploding. Brick and mortar shops were popping up in small towns and large cities and multiplying at Starbucks storefront rates. You can now buy high-end weed from iconic stoners like Willie Nelson, Seth Rogen, and Snoop Dogg, but also from more unlikely cultural figureheads like Martha Stewart and Francis Ford Coppola. At the time of this podcast, 18 U.S. states in Washington, D.C. have legalized marijuana for adults over the age of 21, and 38 states, along with D.C., have legalized medical marijuana. For the first time ever, most Americans have easy access to legal cannabis even mythical cannabis. Garcia Handpicked includes in its arsenal a particularly fabled strain of weed in the Grateful Dead universe called Chemdog. The origins of Chemdog trace back to June of 1991, when the band was really starting to cook with their new keyboardist, Vince Welnick. Outside the Dead shows at the Deer Creek Amphitheater in Deer Creek, Indiana, Deadheads stalked Shakedown Street for Something Mellow something that would make their minds and their bodies feel the way that the Grateful Dead's music sounded. One of the many deals that went down that day was one where a deadhead named Kem bought a strain of weed called Dogbud off two other deadheads, Joe Brand and Pete Bud. Kem paid $500 for an ounce in a baggie. Joe Brand and Pete Bud told Kem that Dogbud originated from somewhere in Northern California, the Emerald Triangle, where the weed grows green and fine perhaps somewhere in Humboldt, Arcata or Eureka, or maybe even that city that was actually named Weed, the one that hid in the shadows of the Cascades at the base of Mount Shasta. So far up north, you were practically in Oregon, Green Rush Territory. Kem was an East Coaster and had only heard of such places from fellow deadheads that he met at shows. The stories about how when it was harvest time each year, kids would show up by the busload, in VW vans and beat to shit sedans from God only knows where, looking for work, hoping to stand in a field of fragrant plants, trimming the buds with their bare hands, the sticky finger hash lingering under their nails for days, all stained yellow and gooey. Trimigrants, they were called, or maybe it was the Trimmigrants themselves who coined the name. People like Jennifer Wilmer, striking out on their own as young adults, leaving behind the safety of places like Long Island for the unknown wilderness of Northern California. Call it wanderlust or naivete, or simply a desire to be a pack animal, to go where like-minded people go, the kind of people who camped out in Jennifer's family's backyard in New York when the dead were in town. There was something about chasing that life that was poetic. The sun beating down on your neck kind, but as far as the eye could see. There was a thrill to it, too. The thrill of knowing that what you were doing was technically illegal. High times, indeed. But what people like Jennifer Wilmer and deadheads like Cam didn't know about the Trimigrant experience would shock them. According to numerous reports, sexual exploitation, abuse, and even trafficking of wide-eyed green-thumb hopefuls ran as deep as cannabis crops in loamy soil. The dark, forested landscape, miles away from any major city, provided the perfect cover for illegal and illicit activity. And I'm not talking about growing marijuana. Trimmigrants working Northern California weed farms, some of them underage, have allegedly fallen victim to rape, assault, and worse. Some turned to prostitution once they realized they could make more money turning tricks with growers than trimming plants for growers. And others still, well, they just disappeared, vanished, up in smoke. So many trimmigrants have gone missing over the years that the police simply cannot keep up. It's a lost cause. In Humboldt County, they call it an epidemic of the lost. The shady weed scene in Northern California didn't change when, in 1996, the state became the first to legalize medical marijuana. That may have only made things worse. It was still the Wild West in the vast expanse of the top half of the state. The law failed to limit how much weed could be grown, and thus it was impossible to know if plants were being used for medicine or for a straight profit. So crime soared. The black market was overrun with product. Growers in the Emerald Triangle began to partner with organized crime. To the cops, there was no drug war to fight because there was no scenario in which the authorities could win. It's all a stark contrast to the idyllic drug scene that has been part of the Grateful Dead narrative for decades. A long, strange trip buoyed by blissed-out faces flashing peace signs and exuding positivity. Or at least that's the version that we've been sold. It's there in what Trixie Garcia and others call community strains, aka weed strains, that echo the peace, love, and togetherness vibe that is the Grateful Dead's quintessence. Strangers stopping strangers just to shake their hands and... All of that. Community strains like Chem Dog, which came into existence when that one deadhead, Kem, returned home to Massachusetts with that 500 dollars bag of dog bud he'd scored in Deer Creek. Kem planted some of the dog bud seeds, and voila. The plant that grew in his home was a variation on a theme. Just like how the dead's help on the way segued into Slipknot and then Franklin's Tower. Dogbud was effortlessly transformed into Kem's hands from one string to the next. Chem plus dog equals ChemDog. Its evolution spanned California to Indiana to Massachusetts and then back to California decades later when Garcia handpicked, incorporated its sweet diesel smell into their curated line of legal weed. It may seem strange for a marijuana brand to emerge in Jerry Garcia's name some 25 years after his last breath, especially given the fact that while he was alive, Captain Tripps never seemed too concerned about living within the limits of the law. But when it came to business, that was one place where the man was surprisingly straight. So in 2020, when weed is legal and a commercial concern, this old engine makes it on time.
2: Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape you can immerse yourself in the world of june parker june's journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist june parker on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
1: Call from mom,
3: answer it. Call silenced.
4: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game.
3: You have 47 new voicemails.
4: Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order, additional terms apply. At the time, the marijuana industry was pretty illicit. Marijuana was selling for up to $4,000 a pound These farms, these marijuana grows, some of them were huge. And when you're talking about large farms, when you have that kind of money, the violence kind of goes with it. You're talking some heavy-duty criminal activity there.
2: This is Randy Mendoza, retired now. He joined the Arcata Police Department in 1982.
4: There's certain cases you remember, and I'll never forget her. Jennifer Jade Wilmer, She went by Jade. Her street name was Jade. And I just, my heart just ached for them. And I did everything I possibly could for them. It was just, there was just dead end. It's been so long. It went on for for years. It was basically one of my only unresolved issues when I retired that I passed on to the staff when I left. It looked like a homicide case to me because, you know, just disappear like that. My sense is, is that she probably got connected with some of the marijuana industry, and there was a lot of violence associated with it. I mean, the the gut feeling is, is the, the area where she was missing, she could have gotten involved in a grow and perhaps gotten in between something there. Somehow, it was determined that Trinity County was the lead agency on this. So we really couldn't start an independent investigation in Arcata because we we had no information that it was that there was any nexus to Arcata and you know and we're limited to our geographic area here. You know, you want the agency where you think the crime occurred to be in charge because they can cover that geographic area where you think that there would be evidence and witnesses to contact. I don't believe that she was missing from Arcata. That she was missing in Trinity County, and uh, I know the Wilmers worked with the Trinity County Sheriff's Department to various degrees. There was a uh, lack of communication. The Trinity County Sheriff was a very small organization back then, and the people that were in charge at the time did not have resources. Law enforcement failed the Wilmer family, they were just so disheartened with, with, with Trinity County sheriff at the time the wilmers were so upset they were not getting the attention that they should have the undersheriff the sheriff at the time threatened to arrest them i mean it it just turned to it turned very very toxic between the wilmers and the trinity county sheriff's department and i want to just say that i don't know anybody at trinity county sheriff's department now and i'm sure that the people that were there back then are no longer there i don't think you can call it a missing person case for forever at some point, the Wilmer family went through their congressman and was able to uh, have the California Department of Justice investigate it. So there is a case file at the California Department of Justice. Since then, there has been more awareness, especially young women, and violence associated with some of these farms, these marijuana grows. If it's not uh, the people that are conducting those large scale operations being violent, it's, it's, it's people trying to rip them off
5: with violence.
4: There was a boyfriend that she had. He was kind of the last direct lead, the last hope. There's always this feeling that he knew more than he was saying, and I think there's probably a good chance of that.
2: When Jennifer moved to California, she met Tro Patterson. They began dating, and after some issues with their roommates in the coastal city of Arcata, she had to move again, 50 miles east, where she found a place in Trinity County, near the small town of Hawkins Bar.
6: Susan, her mom, sent a picture of Jennifer to the police department so they would have it, so they can maybe put it on flyers, so they can put it in their database or whatever.
2: This is Billy Jensen. In 1993, he wrote an article focusing on Jennifer's disappearance.
6: When she visited the house where Jennifer had been staying, the picture was there. It had been returned, and they didn't do anything with it. And she saw that as basically, lady, you're on your own, we're sending it back to you. We don't want to hear from you anymore. If this was an investigation today, you'd like to think that it would have gone differently primarily because of what she left behind. If you're able to look at the circumstances, primarily the things that she didn't take when she left, that is key.
2: Jennifer left her house to head to the farm, but didn't bring any identification. She left behind her clothes, her address book,
6: her Bible, her bank card, and her sleeping bag. In the early 90s, nobody really had cell phones back then. But her leaving this other stuff behind is the equivalent of leaving your cell phone behind. Leaving your ID and your sleeping bag and all of this stuff. Looking at that should have been the main marker of saying, this is serious. We need to act like this person is potentially being harmed in some way let's utilize our resources. But it doesn't look like that was done. Her note said, bye, everybody. I'm going to my first day on the farm.
0: Bye, everybody. Went to my first day at the farm. Wish me luck.
6: There was a farm up the road, and when we say farm, we mean marijuana farm, that was not hiring, but that doesn't necessarily jive then with her note because her note said, bye, everybody. I'm going to my first day on the farm. So maybe she was wishful thinking and thinking, oh, they'll definitely want to hire me. I'll just show up on the farm. I don't know. I don't know why she would have termed that if they had said, oh, the farm wasn't hiring. I don't think the police seemed overwhelmed. And if it's a case of, we need to look for a missing woman who might be under somebody's control or might be being harmed versus going and busting a marijuana grow I think we all agree where the resources should have gone so she leaves that morning in the note she says to Mingo who was one of the roommates good luck to you Mingo and see you in a few months which either can mean she would be back in a few months or he was leaving it makes it sound like maybe he was leaving
2: not left with a lot of clues in Jennifer's case aside from the note. This section that Billy is referring to is important. When she says to Mingo, her roommate, see you in a few months, does she mean that she is leaving for a few months? If that's what she meant, why would she direct that at only one of her roommates and not all of them?
6: Susan, her mom, thinks that maybe she was hitchhiking and going to go to Arcata. For somebody to write that note, never be heard from again, potentially going to a farm and then talking to the farm and the farm and never heard of her, there's, there's things that are going on that just don't add up.
2: The original detective took it to mean that Jennifer was leaving for a few months. But when I read it, it seems like Mingo was the one going away.
0: Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. That's greenlight.com odyssey.
3: Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
6: I'm working on a book right now about how the opioid epidemic is, particularly in the Midwest, is providing a cloak for serial killers. There are these women that are out there, they get hooked on pills, the pills get taken away. Somebody says, hey, try some heroin. They get hooked on heroin and then they have to pay for the heroin. Then their boyfriend, quote unquote, puts them out and says, you have to become a sex worker. You have these guys then, if you're a serial killer, you're gonna go there because you know that that person is so desperate and you're gonna be able to hide underneath that cloak if you wanted to take advantage of somebody, that is a place where somebody could potentially go. There was Wayne Allen Ford, who is a truck driver from Arcada. He had walked into a sheriff's department in Humboldt County and inside his pocket, he pulled out a plastic baggie and it contained a woman's severed breast. They were originally looking at him. He had confessed, I believe, to four people, killing four people. And it turns out that he was in the Midwest during her disappearance. There was actually a young woman who entered an abortion clinic saying that her name was Jennifer Wilmer. Everybody sort of got excited. Maybe this is her. And it turns out she was 14 years old. She was trying to hide the pregnancy from her parents. And she had seen Jennifer's name on a missing person poster and then decided to use that as an alias. Throughout the time when I was talking to one of the detectives, a guy named LaFrancini, he had gotten a tip that they had seen Jennifer at a Deadhead show a few years earlier.
5: My opinion at the time was she left her home because of friction between her and
2: her parents. This is David LaFrancini, a Trinity County sheriff who is first to investigate Jennifer's case.
5: She just ceased to exist. I mean, it was just like you turned the switch off. Her presence out here to me was kind of a walk away. Whether it be from her parents, whether it be from I'm done with society, I mean, she kind of traveled in those circles, she came out here and, you know, was kind of living an alternate lifestyle relative to what her parents lived. Naturally, the type of people that she kind of came in contact in that lifestyle, there was a potential risk factor, you know. Some of them were not uh, of the best moral character, and none of them really stood out in particular is going, oh, we got to look at this guy. But we did look at a lot of them, and, and all of those things are time consuming, but uh, they never turned much up. Basically, everywhere we turned, we turned up a dead end. You know, it was just like she disappeared. And you follow up the leads as they come in, and there never were any really good leads in this to begin with. But after a while, the bad ones dry up, so to speak.
6: There was once a jailhouse confession. A guy said that Jennifer was buried in Blocksburg, California. And I asked LaFrancini, I said, well, what are you gonna do with that information? And I remember him telling me, he said, that would be third-hand hearsay. I sat down with the guy. The first thing he said was, I'll tell you some stuff. If you can get a break on my charges, it was all fabricated.
2: While visiting the police station, Jennifer's mother, Susan, saw a manila envelope in one of the sheriff's hands labeled Wilmer. It was empty.
6: When people would go missing a hundred years ago, a lot of times they weren't tagged as missing because people would just go off and start new lives. That was just a thing that happened, even in the 70s. People would just leave and start a new life, and then maybe I'll see you at Thanksgiving or something like that. But this case is completely different. This case is somebody that left a note, said they were leaving, but most importantly, left all of their stuff behind. When somebody does that, that means they were not going for a long period of time. They were not walking away. Something happened to them.
5: This is the CBS Evening News. The high-profile search Pauly Class, kidnapped from her own bedroom three years ago, made her face familiar across the country. After she was found murdered, her father rose to prominence as an advocate for tough laws to protect children.
6: One of the strange things about this case is that Jay Patterson was the boss of Class's father. And Class went missing, I believe it was a month after Jennifer went missing. So he got thrown into a whole nother thing that was one of the biggest and worst crimes in that area's history.
2: A month after Jennifer Wilmer's disappearance, a 12-year-old girl named Polly Klass was having a slumber party with two friends when a drunk man came into her bedroom holding a knife. He tied up Polly's two friends, put pillowcases over their heads, and told them to count to a thousand. When they started counting, he left with Polly and later strangled her. An all-points bulletin was issued immediately, and within hours, a babysitter spotted him parked in a ditch outside of her client's house. She told the property owner about it, and they called the police. The officers dispatched to the scene didn't know about the kidnapping, as their department used a separate radio channel than the one that issued the alert. They approached Richard Allen Davis and ran his plates and license, but found no warrants. The police urged the homeowner to perform a citizen's arrest on him so that they could take him into custody. But the homeowner refused. The deputies searched his car and found an open beer in his truck. But because he wasn't driving when they found him, they made him just pour it out, towed his truck, and let him go. A month later, the property owner was having some trees taken down near the ditch when loggers found a torn pair of ballet leggings. She called the police with the suspicion that they belonged to the girl kidnapped a month prior. 3 years later, in 1996, Richard Allen Davis was convicted of kidnapping and killing Polly Klass.
5: I would also like to state for the record that the main reason I know that I did not attempt any elude act and that was because of a statement the young girl made to me when walking her up the embankment. Just don't do me like my dad. I have to pay my dues so
1: Damn
4: one. He has made innocent people suffer. And truly the honorable way out would be for him to commit suicide. It's the least he can do to alleviate our pain. This was sentencing day in one of the most notorious murder cases of our time. A judge in San Jose, California, accepted the recommendation of the jury and condemned Richard Allen Davis to death for the kidnap, rape, and murder of
5: 12-year-old Polly Plas.
2: Truck driver-turned-serial-killer Wayne Adam Ford had an alibi on the date that Jennifer went missing, but Richard Allen Davis did not. If it was neither one of them, who else could have been responsible for her disappearance?
7: She had a kind of quiet shyness to her. She was just such a a very pretty girl, but I felt like she never really, like, realized how pretty she was.
2: This is Jennifer's cousin, Laura.
7: Yeah, I was five years older, so we spent a lot of time together. But I just remember her being, you know, the baby of the family. She was just um, just a joy. She was just a happy, uh, very happy baby, very happy kid, always adorable. When she got older, I guess we were hanging out as friends, but she began dating my boyfriend's neighbor, who was this boy, Johnny Esposito. We used to call them the lumps. That was like our joke, because they were like, wanted to just be couch potatoes, and they were kind of like just hanging out with each other. I remember they went to the prom together, they became very like intertwined and almost like in a way antisocial, in a sense. But they would then come together and hang out in a crowd with all of us. And so we kind of hung out together then, and she was into the music and she she liked the Grateful Dead. um and just really almost it became like an obsession. So she had this like dual thing, like where she could be like this good girl, but then she had this wild side to her, I guess, that wanted to go follow the dead and and be a deadhead. And to her detriment and even like her relationship with her boyfriend would be, well, I got tickets to a show, I'm, I'm going to California. And he would be like shocked that all of a sudden she got up and went. So there was some kind of like pull there for her to go. But I just remember how devastated he was when, you know, All of a sudden she was on a flight and going to see them somewhere. And this was more happening toward when she finally moved to California. So it was like this gradual thing, like she was going out to see them and then next thing you know, she was like, "Um," like she was there. That became her way of life, was to go out there. Like something about me always felt like I needed to keep a connection to her. And so I just remember, like, being nervous for her, like, being there. Like, my last time I saw her, she had come home for Thanksgiving. And I want to say it must have been, like, a year before she went missing, when she came home for that family uh, party. And it wasn't really treated like a missing person case. It was treated like a runaway. So it was very frustrating that she was already living in another state, so why was she running away? You know, like she was missing from the state that she ran away to.
2: If Jennifer moved to California to get away and start a new lifestyle, why would she run away from the place she wanted to move to so bad?
7: She became friendly with Tro, who was the boyfriend in California at the time. Like, I didn't know any of the people like that she was there with at all. I did hear rumors that she might have been part of the Rainbow Children or some kind of group that was involved with following the Grateful Dead. So kind of like a commune type of living situation. But my gut right away was like, my aunt was like talking about this guy Tro, like he was this great guy who was like helping them. But I'm like, you know, right away I'm thinking, he's got something to do with this.
6: Susan definitely mentioned that she was suspicious of Tro. She was trying to get him to talk he was not necessarily that forthcoming. I talked to his father and I was looking for him. I contacted his father Jay Patterson and Jay told me quote he's up north. I was hoping that we could get over this calamity rather than open up a festering old wound. And I told him, the wound has never closed. This woman is still missing. So there's no opening up a festering old wound. I always felt that was weird that he said, I wish they could get over this calamity rather than open up a festering old wound. It's just like, why is it a calamity? Why is it, you know, there's no opening up a wound. The wound is still there. She's still looking for her daughter.
2: Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and Jake Brennan. Check out Jake's other music and true crime show, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis, and brought to you by Cadence 13, and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and Jake Brennan. This show is produced by myself, Mike Rooney, Alex Vespasted, and Eric Quintana. Mixed by Cooper Skinner. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music services by Ryan Spraker. Additional mixing by Matt Bowden. Additional writing by Zeth Lundy. Copy edited by Pat Healy. Research and reporting by Eric Tricky. Cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Orrin Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Chris Cochran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. And as always, thank you for your support.